Well, again, it's so good to um, see each and every one of you. Thanks for taking the time in the middle of your week to be here to press in. Um, we're going to be taking communion as we uh, do each week at the end of the service. So if you, if you didn't pick up the elements on your way in, feel free to get up even now. Just go grab those elements at the back, and then Pastor John will lead us uh, through that toward the end of the service. <clears throat> well, we are, um, we're, we're halfway through after tonight. We're four weeks into our Revelation series uh, that Pastor John Mel has been leading us into and through. And if you haven't, I was just talking to um, a few people before the service that said, oh, we, we missed the first three weeks. Um, go to our listen and watch page on uh, Timberline's um, website and catch up and you, can, and you can pick up on all those. So anyway, uh, as Pastor John comes, we are thrilled to have him here again with us as we continue and get into chapter four of the book of Revelation. Thanks, Pastor John. You know, we know this pretty well here in uh, northern Colorado, that when you hear thunder, it means a storm's coming. Revelation 4, 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings, peals of thunder. Storm's coming. There's a point in tonight's teaching where I'm going to say this. Revelation does not get any harder than this. I can honestly tell you I'm not looking forward to that moment, that feeling. But, but we'll get to that. Um, that'll be tough enough on its own, so let's not start there. Some of us found ourselves after chapters 2 and 3 feeling like, man, Revelation I don't know what all the hubbub's about. It, it, it's not that scary. It seems quite familiar. And then with chapter four, it's going to seem like we're in a whole different letter. But the meat of Revelation serves as answers to pressing questions that those seven churches that we just talked about last week, that they would have. Questions like, how is the church supposed to endure? How is the plan of God really secure? Because based on how I'm seeing the world, I don't see it panning out that way. Does God actually have a plan that will actually work over history? The meat of Revelation reveals the answers to those questions. And it really gives us a view of history from God's perspective, a feeling about history from God's perspective. My son at dinner tonight, he asked, what is Revelation all about? You love that when you get that from an 11-year-old. And I got to say, in the past and the present and the future, Revelation helps us see things and feel things like God does. Now that we're covering sections at a time, numerous chapters, for those of you that are following along in your Bibles, tonight is going to feel like, I'm very aware of this, it'll feel like we're just skimming over things very quickly. I'm very aware of that. Nothing like the pace that we started out with. So I'm going to either assume or at least encourage you to be engaging in this at least a little bit on your own. That's the job of a pastor is, is not to do all the spiritual work and all the reading for believers and we just get to sit there. The job is to say this is more necessary and accessible for all of us. So I want to really encourage you, be diving into this even just a little bit on your own. So tonight we're going to begin at the start of chapter four. It starts with after this meaning after Jesus's specific words to the seven churches. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. The door of heaven stands open. Access 
to the very throne room of Yahweh. What if, what if right now we could rip the ceiling off of this place and, and access the very throne room of God Almighty? What would it be like? Revelation 4 says it would be like this. Holy, 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 perfect, good, just, and righteous. Holy, 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 set apart at such a level that any degree of sin dishonors and offends him and is incompatible with his presence. Holy, 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 none is like him. We just sang about this. Wasn't that beautiful? None is like him. None is his equal. None can threaten or thwart him. If you want to know what, what extreme worship looks and feels like, if you want to know what's going on right now before the throne room of Yahweh, you want to know what's been going on every moment of your life in the heavenly realms, utter unreserved, unrestrained worship. Holy, holy, holy. And I just go, wow, how did John get such a privilege to access the very throne room of Yahweh? At once I was in the spirit. That's the second occasion of four throughout Revelation. Divinely possessed or overtaken, as we talked about in a previous week, divinely overpowered to take all of this in. And at once, at the very heart of what he sees is the throne, the throne. Everything gets its bearings in Revelation in relation to this, the central locale of Revelation. The throne symbolizes God's majesty and power and his rule, majestically transcendent, encircled in brilliance. And as you read through Revelation, everything, whether angels or elders or lamps or a sea of glass or living creatures, everything finds themselves in relation, revolving around the throne and the one who sits on it. When the seven churches are in the very midst of, of persecution and oppression, to an, a wicked, evil man that is demanding their allegiance, the message that comes to them is this vision of God's throne making it clear he is the only one in real power. He is the only one whose purposes demand allegiance and worship and that message, I think that makes chapter four, following uh, what we covered last week in chapter three, the specific letters to the seven churches, not such a, a sharp transition after all. Hey, seven churches, he's in control. He's the only leader that demands your utter and utmost allegiance. The glisten and the gleam as we're reading or scanning through chapter four makes us squint even just reading it. Verse three, he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald, valuable, precious stones. Before I started this, this Wednesday night community series, one of you shared with me how a study on those specific stones, what they meant, what they represented, takes this and makes it very powerful and very beautiful. That's, that's one of those examples of a rabbit trail that you, you can just study the stones here and see how much it serves to glorify God, how deep and meaningful it is. Brief Old Testament note, when the temple was adorned in the Old Testament, it wasn't on the cheap. There was not muted colors and knockoff jewels. We're gonna try to save some money here. This was a place ornate with valuable, shiny, resplendent design. That's because of the divine overlap of the temple. The divine overlap of God's space and our space. 
That's the purpose that the temple served and the tabernacle served. And I'll tell you what, believer, the New Testament tells us that's the purpose you serve. You are the temple, the divine overlap, incredibly rich, incredibly valuable in God's eyes. This divine overlap of of God's space and our space. And as we keep moving through chapter four, next come angels and living creatures. There's, There's a lot of angels, 71 mentions of angels throughout this book of Revelation. Why so many? I mean, we've seen and heard about incidents where angels come and and they kind of play a role, but why so much volume here in Revelation of angelic beings? Because this is us getting a glimpse beyond our reality. This is us getting a glimpse beyond our reality. And then come 24 elders and they join in. 12 and 12, representing the whole Old Testament people of God, 12 tribes, and 12 representing the New Testament people of God, 12 apostles. Together, the angels and the elders and the saints and the living creatures, it makes me wonder, what's their reality like? Worship. Utter, unreserved worship. The kind that you and I can only dream about. But guys, we should dream about it. Unreserved, perfect worship from creatures and elders representing the choir of revelation entirely. And how do, how do those two worlds, the, the spiritual world, inner work and overlap? God's space that's active with angels and, and spiritual creatures in our space that we know so well. How, how does that work, that overlap work? Well, that's what the meat of Revelation is all about. How does God's plan and and God's inner workings of the spiritual realm overlap and work throughout history? That's why we have the rest of this good and great Revelation. This is what is referred to in Revelation as what must take place. Now we're into chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, right hand meaning control, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth, or under the earth, was able to open the scroll, or look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll, or look into it. What what does being worthy have to do with with opening and and looking into a scroll? Well, let's, let's put it this way. Who has sufficient authority and ability to both unveil and implement God's plan over over history? Who has that kind of ability or authority? Who can be fully entrusted with this? I promise you, not even the most braggadocious person you or I have ever met would have the guts to stand forward at this question. All creation in heaven and on earth and under the earth stands motionless and speechless. The elders don't move. The angels don't move. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth has sufficient authority to see and oversee the full revelation of the Lord Almighty and unfold the whole plan of human history. And then one of the elders speaks up. And because of how bold this is, I'm thinking it's Peter. One of the elders breaks the silence and points everyone to the Lion of Judah. Here he comes. The Lion of Judah, hailing from the tribe, the lineage plan set all the way back in the sons of Jacob, Genesis. Judah 
the brother that would repentantly offer up his life sacrificially for his younger brother, Benjamin. The lion man doing a very sacrificial lamb-like thing. And that legacy guided across all of history and generations would lead one day to a manger in Bethlehem. The root of David. This is the moment you've been waiting for. The lion of Judah is on the scene. This one is the real king. He deserves your loyalty. For those of us that only grew up with soft depictions of Jesus, that the only vision of Jesus we ever got was that he was just meek and mild, we missed out. He is not just meek and mild. He's the lion. He is not just a petter of lambs with soft flowing hair. He's a lion. He's a king. He is a blood-soaked warrior. And for those of us that start to get excited about Braveheart-like scenes in our mind, this one is even better than that, even better than you can possibly dream. Here he comes, the Lion of Judah. That's what John hears. He hears, here comes the Lion of Judah, and he turns to look, and this is what he saw. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw... A lamb standing as though it had been slain. A bloodied lamb? I thought this was the lion's time. I thought this was the conqueror's time. It is. Don't miss this. This is the conqueror. The lion and the lamb. This is how he conquers. The lion of Judah is the great slain lamb standing alive. I love that, that revelation gives this picture of the lamb as though slain, but is he slain? No, he's alive. Was what he endured real? The blood that he shed real? Yes. For all of eternity, when we look at Jesus, we're going to remember he didn't just go through the motions on Good Friday. He went through torture. His body was pierced. His blood was shed. It wasn't just an act. But he stands alive, even still. A conqueror worthy to open the scroll. Remember yet again that the Old Testament key to understanding Revelation, a people with a background rich in the great celebration of how God had passed over houses how? Because those homes had been covered by the blood of the lamb, slain for their protection, in order to free his people from enslavement in Egypt. This is the true, full Passover lamb. Did he not prove that his death, their attempts to slay him, was not his defeat? It was the way that he would conquer the world. You want a lion-like conqueror? This is him better than you can even dream of. And the ways in which he conquers might surprise us. Almost like what you see, a bloody lamb, is forever a testimony that he took the worst that this world could give him, and here he still stands. Who can come against a perfect, righteous commander of angelic armies that even death itself can't touch, just bounces off of him? Who can, how do you beat that man? How do you conquer him? You don't. That's the Jesus I want us to picture. That's the Jesus I want my kids to picture. So now let's, let's turn a bit more to the scroll of the Lamb. How is God's kingdom going to come on earth as it is in heaven? This is what the scroll entails. entails. The scroll describes the prophetic role of the church with a background of God's call for people to repent because his sure judgment is certain. And the scroll also describes the ways that the beast will come and witnesses the church 
Yes, the scroll knows that all of the persecution will still come, and even so, the church still stands victorious, enduring all of this. And as the lamb, worthy, worthy is he, prepares to open the scroll, now in Revelation is not the time for silence. Great singing erupts as Jesus prepares to open the scroll. It says, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom, priests to our God. Picture this, not just an awesome church service on a Sunday morning or an incredible concert at Red Rocks. Myriads upon myriads, thousands upon thousands, bawling out with everything they got. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Just try to picture that kind of worship. Utter, unreserved worship. Chapter six, now for the seven seals. The unfolding accounts of history come only by the authority and permission, as in per the mission of God. So that all people, not just Israel, but all nations would understand and see and repent. Don't, don't miss that theme right there, that one word, repent. We're going to come back to that in a bit. All throughout chapter 6 and the opening of the seals reveals the judgment of the Lord for those who choose to remain in rebellion. No one can say they weren't warned. No one can claim God's judgment comes out of nowhere. The only question will be and always has been, Will we listen? Will we respond? Will people respond to God's call to repent? Again, we're going we're gonna to touch on that in a very tough chapter 9. Even after people reject his glory and his grace calling people to repentance, God keeps at it. Maybe a foretaste of the judgment that awaits eternal rebels. Maybe just, just a foretaste of that will cause someone to turn and repent. They'll see the destiny of what their rebellious ways leads to. The point, God's point here being what? Why does he pour out judgment as a call for people somehow to repent? A call, a plea, everything within his power that nations would repent. Don't lose hold of that tonight. And alas, at the sight of God sitting on his throne, the depravity of humanity causes them to call for mountains to, to fall upon them so that they will not have to face the great judgment of the Lamb. Chapter six ends with the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? And then chapter seven picks up the answer to that question. The answer to the question, who can stand is the sealed, those sealed. God's owned and protected people, the multi-ethnic army of the Lord. Elsewhere in scripture, Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, Paul says, in Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. To the sealed, they are the ones claimed by the Holy Spirit for salvation, belonging to the king. The sealed do not need to fear the great judgment of revelation. And I heard the number of the sealed. Anybody have Bibles? What, what's that number? 144,000. <laughs> Seems awfully specific. 
Actually, it seems honestly quite low if we, were, if we are talking about the number of all those who are sealed by the Holy Spirit. So what, what's going on here? If this sounds like a literal total of those who are sealed by the Holy Spirit, I'm not sure why we would, we would take other things in Re- Revelation representatively, like the seven spirits before the Lord representing the Holy Spirit. But now we understand this number as a literal census of believers. Or some say uh, census of the believers of ethnic Israel. Look a bit more. If you have your Bibles, open near the beginning of chapter 7 at that list of the 144,000. I want you to just just look at that. It says, the 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Here's another challenge to taking that, though, as a literal roster. Those listed that follow that are not all the tribes of Israel. For instance, Dan, that's a tribe of Israel, a son of Jacob, or son of Israel, is omitted, isn't on that list. And then Manasseh, Israel's grandson, not a tribe, is included. So this is not a family or tribe roll call. It can't be a literal list. Then then what else is maybe going on here? It's in the numerology, the the representation of numbers. The number, 144,000, 12 by 12 by 1,000, suggests numerological symbolism here. 12 tribes representing the Old Testament, 12 apostles representing the New Testament people, and 1,000 representing a span of generations. Perhaps like a thousand years later in Revelation may represent a span or a duration of time. But just like there is significant debate over whether the 144,000 should be taken literally, there's maybe even more heated debate on whether Israel here is symbolic for the church or is intended to refer to a literal ethnic Israel distinct from the church. I've shared probably more than a hint in my leaning of of representative numbers that it continues to apply here, that that 12 by 12 by 1,000 represents the Old Testament and the New Testament people of God over all generations. And you know what? There's really smart people that feel differently about that. And I wanna learn from them because I'm not sure I fully understand that right here, right now. I wanna learn and I wanna grow in this. We're inching a little closer to that dreaded chapter nine that I talked about. Chapter eight, check this out. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for half an hour. (laughs) Half an hour. What what does the sense of time, just, just 30 minutes, play in heaven? Well, in the terms that we talked about when we went spiritually scuba diving back in week one, Heaven knows that time matters to the people of God a great deal. God knows that because he gave that sense of time to us and to the seven churches. Because we operate in time, a succession of moments. And we get our sense of time from the God that is above it. Telling us, not necessarily here, that there was a, some amount of silence that lasted exactly 30 minutes or precisely 1,800 seconds, but that even in the midst of this unending, unrelentless, unreserved praise, as God's wrath is about to be poured out, you know what heaven does? Goes silent. Pauses out of respect in the midst of history and the judgment of God unfolding, that there would be a brief pause ahead of the coming woes, even in heaven. No one takes this lightly. Even 
heaven, even knowing and firsthand experiencing the greatness of worship and the greatness of the glorified Christ, even heaven, when the judgment of God is about to be poured out, doesn't go, this is going to be great. Even heaven pauses for the woes that are about to be poured out over history. Devastating woes, but not complete. Not yet. Why? in hopes that people would repent. Even in this cosmic, mind-boggling scope of heaven, silence, respect, concern is given by the choir of heaven, sharing God's concern that people need to repent. And for the great tribulation that God's persecuted church is enduring. Have you ever wondered the level of heaven's concern for what you're going through? Have you ever felt like maybe just the heavenly concepts of, of what I'm going through just, just passes by me and, and, and sees things on such a great scale that my life, my tribulation, what I'm going through doesn't really matter on that scale? If that's ever how you felt, read Revelation chapter 8 verse 1 over and over and over and you're going to remind yourself heaven sees, heaven knows. Heaven cares. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. Trumpets represent dramatic calls to repent. As you journey through chapter eight, if you have your Bibles, do this right now. Uh, plague imagery is recalled from Exodus seven through 11. Very familiar with those with Old Testament eyes, right? And like Pharaoh of old, he's a figure we're going to deal with a little bit more in a future week. The nations refuse to heed God's trumpeted judgment. With a pen or a highlighter or something for those of you taking notes in your Bibles, consider doing what I did, a little, a little trick. Every time chapter 8 says the word third, circle it, highlight it, underline it, do something, you're going to see thirds are everywhere in chapter 8. A third, a third, a third, a third, a third. Why a third? Because when God is pouring out his judgment right here, it is mercifully measured. He does not just pour out his wrath full bore. He pours it out, but just mercifully a third, still holding out room. Once again, real and devastating woes, but not complete in all hopes and intent that people would repent. Chapter eight, verse 13. Woe, 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 humanity, repent. Please repent. Uh, woe to you for what is about to blow. Chapter nine, here it is. This is a tough chapter, a tough piece to settle with because honestly, if we allow this depth, the call of God upon history to repent and people, real people that are in your homes and my home, people, we're not, we're not excused from this. It honestly develops a lump in my throat just to talk about this content. It's supposed to be that way when we see things from God's perspective and feel things the way God does. When his calls to repent, trumpeted judgment is unheeded by people. Eternity, waywardness, rebellion must not be taken lightly. We'll keep saying it. God's going to be worshiped for all of eternity and people of the church endure even the tribulation that you're facing. That's what Revelation's all about. But, but for tonight, for this teaching, this is the most critical thing that I want us to hear. Woes are released upon all rebels in succession like plagues ever holding out the intent, the call, the purpose that God has been pleading and pleading and pleading to repent. And in chapter nine, the, the rebellious raise up their own king. In Hebrew, his name is Abaddon. And in Greek, he is called Apollyon. 
They're picking sides. And the first woe passes. Behold, two woes are still to come. And no matter the warnings, the people rebel stubbornly, even wickedly, and it holds fast like a cancer. And I don't really want to continue with chapter 9. What's the point? As you read chapter 9, and hopefully you don't enjoy it. (laughs) Hopefully you don't enjoy seeing the judgment of God poured out upon unrepentant people. What's the point? Why is he doing things in thirds and then doing them in successions? What is God doing here? What's the point of all the torment and the woes of chapter 9? This is our God that we're talking about. What's he doing? What's he after? Repentance, if at all possible. And for some, for many, for too many, Revelation chapter 9 verses 20 through 21 shows the total depravity of the ever-rebellious. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or of their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. And church, here's what I hate. That is going on right now in the lives of loved ones around us. That's going on in in people that I care about, names that I actually have here written on my computer, remembering this isn't some, some teaching or some concept that I'm exploring with you right now. That kind of stubborn, wicked, eternally consequential rebellion is happening in loved ones that I know and loved ones that you know. None of us are exempt from this. They, they worship, they model their lives after things that aren't even animated. They can't even see or hear or walk. And yet spiritual patterns of total allegiance and worship to the things of this world develop like ruts in their souls. And unrepentance continues to just take over like a cancer. I don't know what to do with this. I mean, I, I do. It's, it's the great reveal. It's the gospel. It's the testimony of the lamb. It's the plea. It's everything else all throughout this book and throughout history. But it breaks my heart. And it breaks God's heart that some unrepentance sticks. And it breaks God's heart. I want, us, I want us to be certain of this as we look at Revelation. We talk about God's judgment and people's unrepentance. I want us to be sure, be certain that in the end, God will have proven that he has done everything he could from messages to warnings to measured judgment that people might avoid eternity apart from him. God will have proven completely faithful that he did everything they could, that people might avoid eternity apart from him by their own choice. But some unrepentance sticks. Revelation does not get harder than this. If you want to see things like God sees them, if you want to feel things like God feels them, Revelation does not get harder than this. So chapter 10, as if to kind of almost force ourselves to move on, John's purpose is revisited. (laughs) Yeah, after a chapter like the last chapter, chapter 9, I'd need a reminder of why am I doing what I'm doing? Chapter 10, verses 8 through 11, Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and I told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter 
but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must prophesy about many people and nations and languages and kings. Take it and eat it. Even, even bitterness can somehow taste sweet because it's, it's God's word. It doesn't mean God's word, God's plan over history, the scroll. It doesn't mean that's gonna sit well with us because that's not the point, is it? That we need history somehow to, to sit well with us, but it can be sweet on our lips as we take it in because it's from God. calling all people to repent to the fact that God will be glorified and his church must endure. So John, you must continue to prophesy. Chapter 11, the nations will ever continue their resistance. They will come and trample the holy city for 42 months and God will grant authority to his two witnesses who will prophesy for 1,200 in 60 days, we've got more numerology here to decipher a bit. For 42 months, mathematically, that's, that's the same as 1,260 days. We'll talk about that more in a moment. The church will suffer and struggle. But in the scope of time, it'll be brief. This is a hyperlink to the apocalyptic content that we see in books like Daniel, where in Daniel we have the phrase time, times, and half a time, which don't worry, I'm not going to detour too much here. Many represent to, to mean a year, years, and half a year. So if you're a math hater, just bear with me. I got your back. I'll take care of you. A year, two years half a year. That equals three and a half years. Also makes it 42 months, 1,260 days. And if you're like me and you're going, uh, what's the deal with all the years, days, months stuff? It continues to have to do with a sense of time, a big picture sense of time. Like we set the foundation on the very first week of this study. I propose that all of this months and days stuff continues to be representative of a significant but relatively short period of time. Like this. All this time stuff, I think, can be translated like this. Time. Evil will rise and wreak havoc. Times. For a longer duration of time, it will seem like evil is actually picking up momentum and that it'll never end but then half a time, evil has a limit, will not last unchecked forever. Evil has a limit. Church, you must endure. And what about the two witnesses? Alongside two olive trees and two lampstands, it says God will anoint two witnesses, two bearers of his testimony to both the rebellious world and his enduring church. All who the lamb has redeemed to rule as kings and serve as priests. Perhaps like Israel, kingdom, and the church, priesthood. Like we read earlier, you have made them a kingdom, priests to our God. Revelation 1, 5 through 6 also says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to God the Father. God's Old Testament representation through his people and the New Testament witnesses, two witnesses. This isn't necessarily dispensational for those of you that know what that means and it's not necessarily replacement but perhaps it's representative here, the two witnesses of the Old Testament and the New Testament people of God. Testaments to the world and to the people of the church. Witnesses. All together, for those of us whose head is starting to hurt, mine, mine included there, 
42 months, two witnesses, keep the point clear. Evil will rise and seem like it's taking ground, but it will not triumph. Let the church endure and let all my people who serve as royal representatives and priests bear faithful witness to outsiders that they would repent and, he brought, and be brought into the kingdom and that they would cease the ways of Sodom and Egypt. If you have your Bibles, Revelation chapter 11, seven through eight says this, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. Can't show that scene in Timber Kids. <laughs> Here we even have a clear cipher of sorts. You have the rare word symbolically or representatively in Greek. It's spiritually. It's a rare occasion where John specifically states that these centers of great earthly power, great rejection are representative. Representative of what? Well, let's, let's look at the roll call here and try to decipher what's going on there. You have Sodom, known for what? Depravity. You got Egypt, known for the persecution of God's people. And around you, you have the great city that's symbolic of Babylon, rooted back in the original settlement of Babel, where people strive to be autonomous and utterly unrecognizing of the Lord. And that legacy ever sticks with Babylon. And in Revelation, Babylon is a euphemism for Rome. And then this passage also says the place where their Lord was crucified. Where is that? Jerusalem. Once again, when we take all of this together, like, like it's either a, a riddle or a puzzle, there exists this crazy rich representation that every nation, every empire, every age that goes the way of the beast, that tries to conquer God's people, if not with delusions, then with death. Everyone that grasps after the glory of the Lord that is God's alone and afflicts the people of the Lamb, you are all on the list. Oh, repent, nations. Repent for destruction of what is wicked and what is opposed to the citizens of the kingdom. Destruction of that is certain. Verse 14, the second woe has now passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. And finally, for this emotional week, then comes the seventh trumpet. From woes to worship. A balm and a celebration for the kingdom. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Human history is full of empires that have defied the Lord, but the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and his shall reign forever and ever. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding of your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name from woes to worship. The seals and the trumpets, the call of God to repentance for all nations, the scroll of the lamb showing how God's fresh, effective mission, the mission of the church where the church imitates the lamb, proving their testimony by love and proof in conquering even death. It's the mercy and it's the kindness of God that brings people to repentance. And before we cover the very last verse for today, technically it's actually the first verse of next week, 
chapter 11, verse 19, as you and I are right in the heart of this, dead center in the meat of Revelation, what's it all about? What's it all about again? God will be glorified. So church, endure. Revelation eleven nineteen. at the very center point of the book, John records the vision that leads us into the deepest perspective of the church's conflict. Right as today's section began, chapter four, right here as chapter 11 is concluding, the last trumpet sounds and the earth is ultimately shaken. Flashes of lightning rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. Storms coming. The cosmic battle, the deepest dimension of this conflict. That's where we're headed next week. As we conclude with communion, would you please stand with me if you're able? As a pastor, as a follower of Jesus, I need you and I need me to be able to ask authentically before God, why should I take all of this serious? Why should I take calls and discipleship in scripture, in revelation? Why should I take it so seriously? Revelation invites us in. This is why. Don't ever take this for granted. This is why we can take the bread and we can remember that that while we were still in rebellion, by no merit of our own, we don't find ourselves before the throne in worship because we just got lucky. It's because while we were still sinners, he died for us, that we may repent. That is not a call that we should be shying away from. The call to repent is good as we take the bread and remember his body was broken for us. And blood shed for the rebellious, for the wayward, so that we might be brought into the kingdom. We might be sealed by the Holy Spirit and be able to be a part of that unreserved, unrelenting choir of heaven. Thank you, God, for the blood. God, as we go tonight and in the days to come, I pray that a new sense of mourning for the lost would would find its way into our souls. We never want to be careless or apathetic about the way calls to repentance go unheeded by people. God, would that break our hearts in a new way in light of this? Because it breaks yours. Would we take calls to repentance, starting with our own, And then for those loved ones and a world around us that so desperately needs to just turn We thank you that your your justice and your wrath and your judgment poured out is mercifully measured right now in hopes that someone might repent. Help us see that and feel about that the way that you do, God. And we would go as your witnesses to a world that needs it. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for this vision. May it root fruit in our hearts. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Love you guys. Have a great week. We'll see you back here next